Psalm 2 today, Psalm 2. You know, we're working on heart, head, and hands. Mondays, we're trying to focus on the character of your heart, a heart like Christ. Wednesdays, we're trying to focus on helping you think biblically, thinking like Christ would think. And Fridays, we're focused on your hands, how to live it out. We can know a lot and not live it. We can know it, do it, and not have a heart that invites the blessing of God and the reward of God and the power of God. I have chosen this psalm because it's very, very important. It begins or it sits at the very beginning of the songbook of inspired songs that are designed to teach us how to experience God and how to relate to God. This is a songbook. And at the very outset of this songbook are two foundational truths, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, form a, by their place and by their theme, critical and cardinal foundations, requirements, prerequisites, core priorities in order to experience God and enjoy the life of God. If you were to ask David, David, what are the most important requirements the portal into the place of experiencing God who in his presence is better than a thousand days elsewhere. What are the requirements for that? He would say, Psalm 1, meditation, saturation in the scripture. And he would say, Psalm 2, submission. Submission to the lordship of God's king. Two inspired corporate requisites, requirements to experiencing God and enjoying life, and you'll need to know and apply both of them if you're going to experience the priceless potential that your life possesses. Now, I know that most of us know Psalm 1. We know that the life that is blessed and benefited, like a tree firmly planted by rivers of water, Green, evergreen, bearing fruit in its season, the life that prospers, that is, it accomplishes what it sets out to do, is defined by the truth of God, delights itself in the law of the Lord, and meditates therein day and night. At the outset, at the gate, there are two pillars into the place of blessing and bounty, the experience of God, the way God desires and the way you desire. Number one, meditation. Number two, Psalm 2, submission. Neglect the scripture and your life will be a waste. Neglect submission and your life will endure great consequence and great pain. On the other hand, submit yourself to the sovereign son and that's what this second and lesser known psalm is themed by, is a message I believe as a heart issue is critical to our culture, critical to our Christian culture. We're at the Master's University for Christ and Scripture. We get the Scripture part. We're saturated classrooms and chapels with the opportunity to be exposed to the blessed, transforming, inspired, life-changing Word of God. But Psalm 2 is as important as Psalm 1. Because Psalm 2, you can know it all and not have any of it all without this core criteria. So, if you would, follow with me as we read Psalm 2, a lesser-known psalm. A critical message for a critical season, both for you and I think our Christian culture and really the culture at large. These are the words of David, Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. 
But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath, it may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Most would say, those who've analyzed these psalms, that this is the most perfect poetry in the songbook. Out of the 150 psalms, the way this is structured is perfect by way of poetry. Parallelism, three verses, four stanzas, all designed to draw you into a critical cardinal theme, a message, a priority, a pursuit, an essential, a non-negotiable, a requirement. Four stanzas, three verses, four perspectives you need to have in order to experience God and enjoy life. Perspective number one, something you need to never forget. Perspective number one, you need to recognize Man's natural reaction to the rule of God. The very first priority perspective revealed in this psalm, this song, is the revelation and the recognition of man's natural reaction to the rule of God. Here it is. Man rebels. Rebellion is rooted in the heart of man. Romans 3. All turn aside, there's none good. Romans 3.18, there's no fear of God before the eyes of men. Here in this beginning of the psalm, world leaders, the world and its leaders, the peoples and those who lead the peoples, express the pattern of fallen humanity, rebellion. Man rebels against the government of God. Look at what they're gathering to oppose. Verse 2, against the Lord, Yahweh, and his anointed, his messianic king, the one he has appointed, the Messiah, his son, the son of David, the promised one, Jesus Christ. And I want you to recognize that in our depravity, in our human depravity, in our fallen nature, there is illustrated here our natural reaction to God's rule, God's appointed ruler. There is deep-seated resistance, deep-seated resolved rebellion to the rule and lordship of our Creator and His Son. Like the Jews in Luke 19... We don't want this man to rule over us. This passage begins by a gathering of peoples and nations resisting the rule of God. And I want you to notice some key words. The nations are in an uproar. The word uproar is they're severely agitated. They're enraged. Like you would if you were a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. No way, no how, red-faced, in a tumult, agitated, frustrated. This is energized resistance. This is energized frustration. It's used one time in the Word of God, and it's right here. Uproar, enraged, hacked, mad, non-compliant. There's a commotion. The second thing I want you to notice is the word devise, verse 1. The people's devising. That's the same word for meditate in this first psalm, verse 2. They're conspiring. They're meditating. They're devising. Verse says they're taking counsel together. They're conspiring, verse 2. They're gathering in a group. 
They're trying to strategize, figure it out, think about how we can get out of submitting to the rule of the one that we do not want to follow. Fallen humanity will scheme to avoid submission. Fallen humanity will strategize to avoid responsibility and consequences. They'll take their stand. I want you to understand this psalm begins to rehearse for our benefit the reality that our world has to overcome. This bound up in our heart resistance to the rule of God. What the world is committed to, what our flesh is committed to, what our basis nature is committed to is human sovereignty. I want to do what I want to do. And if you're going to experience God, if you're going to enjoy your life, you're going to need to recognize that that is my natural default position. That's the way it's been, that's the way it is, and that's the way it will be until God intervenes and until there is a surrender of your will to his will. Matter of fact, if you'll turn over to Acts chapter 4, you'll see this psalm quoted because we've seen this before. This is really an anticipation of a historical event, event in the future. When God's king is anointed, when God's king is presented, and when God's king is rejected. This is a reflection of the people of God after the apostles Peter and John had been in, they've been, they've been, led into captivity, they've been jailed because of the healing on the Sabbath day, they've been taken in front of the spiritual hierarchy to be questioned, they've been commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, they're released after they say, listen, we can't abide by that commandment, and they go back to the gathering of God's people, the early church, and In verse 23, Acts 4, And when they had been released, they went to their own companions, that's the church, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Don't talk in the name of Jesus. Don't do anything in the name of Jesus. Verse 24, And when they heard this, the church, they lifted their voices to God in prayer, and in one accord, in other words, in a united voice, they said, O Lord, It is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. You're sovereign over all by virtue of your creation. Verse 25, and by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said, now here it is, Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and why did the peoples devise futile things? And the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So they quote the psalm we were just in as a reference to a historical reality that they had just seen and experienced. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, the anointed one, whom thou didst anoint. Now look at the record of the players who were resisting. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, literally the nations, the outside of the Jewish covenant people, and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose have predestined to occur. Now what Acts 4 says is this, this rejection of Jesus is universal. It's the Jews, and it's the Gentiles. It's the king, and it's the governor. It's the rulers, and it's the people. We don't want this man to rule over us. And the early church is recognizing that this is a pattern that was 
predicted. This is a pattern that will be fulfilled. This is a pattern that will reoccur again. Revelation 19. When the king of everything, the anointed one, the king of kings returns on a white charger with the armies of heaven, he will face the gathered armies of the world led by the beast and the antichrist who will resist his rule. And the blood will flow to the horse's bridles, and the birds will eat the flesh of men who endure the loss of the sovereign who will not be resisted. You'll see this again a thousand years later when the king of everything is enthroned on an earthly throne. The messianic rule, the physical kingdom, the millennium, a thousand years of perfect rule by a perfect king. And at the end of that time, when Satan is released from the pit, he will deceive the nations, and the nations will gather again, opposed to the lordship and leadership and the kingship of Jesus Christ the righteous. Irrespective of how good and perfect that leadership is. You see, we tend to think in our culture, man, if we just had good leaders, if we just had righteous men, if we just had men who would do the right thing the right way all the time, man, it would be so different. What the end of the millennium communicates is because of what's really wrong with us, it won't be different. Because the issue is not just the leadership. It's the problem of our heart. And the very first thing that I would like to highlight this morning a perspective I don't want you to forget because it's a requirement to recognize that beating in my heart is a commitment to self-sovereignty. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do it, and I don't care what you want me to do. I'm bothered by this. I'm agitated. I will figure out a way around this. I'll conspire, and I'll devise. I'll refuse, I'll resist, I'll stand against. I'm not submitting. I was reading uh, an article recently, an interview of uh, Hugh Jackman. He's an actor, plays in the X-Men kind of series, and he was interviewed. His parents uh, were born again at a Billy Graham crusade. He comes from a conservative Christian home. But this is what he said about his Christian upbringing. I found my Christian upbringing very stifling. And when I got untethered, when I got untethered from the comfort of my religion, it wasn't a loss of faith for me, it was a discovery of faith in myself. There's peace, he said, in understanding that I have only one life here and now. I'm responsible, I'm capable, and I'm in charge. In the same interview, it was reported that uh, today, Jackman is not particularly religious, says he never prays. Though he does believe in some form of God in afterlife, and he meditates twice daily for 30 minutes, he says this about that, quote, it's about quieting that part of the brain and just seeing and being, not about God, but about being me, end quote. This psalm, back to Psalm 2, says that the natural desire of man is to tear off the fetters like shackles To the, to the human fallen condition, to the flesh, God's commands are like chains. They're restrictive. They're punitive. Verse 3, they're like fetters. They're like cords. The flesh wishes to break and to discard them. Break, snap, like Samson when he was bound up. And the flesh expresses an absolute resistance to that. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I rebel. Now listen, more than likely, at this place and at this time and in this context, 
Nobody's going to hold up their fist and say, no way, no how when it comes to God. But watch for the subtle ways behind the scenes, less overt, less, less obvious. We are prone to practice our own independence. In an age of consumerism where the chooser gets to do the choosing, the content of the choice is irrelevant, and we have a supermarket style or culture of living which says, I want that, I want that, I'll take that, I'll decide. In a Facebook culture where somebody's selling something, selling myself, like me, don't like me. Agree with me, don't agree with me. A kind of self-sovereignty. I decide. The Lord has established his rule, and man resists it. Let's move on to verse 4 and look at the... Oh, oh, no, before we do that, let me make one other, I think, critical statement out of these first verses. Don't miss this truth, this resistance. Verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar? They're resisting the rule of God. There's rebellion in the heart. And the people's devising, here's a key word, a vain thing. A useless thing. A purposeless thing. A non-productive thing. They're going to work really hard to accomplish nothing. Which is meant to say in the inspired perspective of God and commentary of God, here's a truth that you ought to note. Rebellion against the rule of God is a vain, useless thing. It's a waste of time. It's useless to resist the rule of God. Rebellion is natural, listen to me, but it's futile. Rebellion is natural, but it's futile, it's vain. Diocletian, one of the early emperors of the Roman Empire, the third century, coined a medal bearing an inscription. And on that, in, that medal and that inscription were these words, Diocletian, the name of the one who had Christians extinguished. There were two pillars raised in Spain in honor of Diocletian, commissioned by Diocletian. On those pillars were written these words in a long name, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximum, Herculeus, Caesarus, Augusti, Latin, big name. His name embossed, his name imprinted on both pillars, and then these words, honored for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and in the west, for having abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extinguished the name of Christians, for having extended the worship of the gods. End quote, end in Scripture. For those who believe that you can resist God's rule and it not be vain, consider this perspective. If you were to call Diocletian to the stage and say, how'd that work out for you? The way it works out for everyone, it's vain. Rebellion is natural, it's futile. Nothing is more irrational than rebellion. Number two, the second perspective you should not forget. Rebellion is not only natural and futile, rebellion is laughable. I want you to notice God's reaction to the rebellion of man. He laughs and he terrifies. He laughs and he terrifies. Rebellion is not only unlaughable, in God's view, it's unacceptable. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The word laughs means he's amused. I, the way I envision, it's like something we would go, really? Like the Chihuahua facing off with a Great Dane. 
I, when Karen and I were first married, we, uh, we bought a chihuahua, a man's dog. <laughs> we actually raised them for a while. They're, they got the heart of a lion, but they're irritating. And Cole liked to bark, 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 so I had veterinarians in my church, and they said, we can fix that. That annoying, loud, piercing bark, we can debark your dog. Well, this was news to me and heaven to my ears. So Cole went to the veterinarian and came home speechless. That's what she would do, no noise. I don't know if she thought she went deaf or what, but we, we, we lived out in the countryside. We had horses and, you know, country places have dogs that don't stay home. Dogs that wander the fields and the forests. And one day, across the front lawn of our home, up on top of a hilltop, among many acres of wooded land, four big, bad dogs. They came across the yard. My dog, Cole, the Chihuahua, decided, not here, not today, this is my house. And I'll never forget, she got out the door as I went to shoo the dogs away. And she stood on the front porch, four big dogs, looking at her like, you've got to be kidding. As she went, bark, making the move, making the gesture, but making no sound. And I thought, what a picture this is. You got this dog that weighs maybe five pounds. You probably have 300 pounds of other dogs. She's barking, and I'm thinking, if dogs did it, they'd be laughing. I was laughing. Really? I think that's the way you need to see God laughs. I think the flavor of this is, really? I sit on the throne of the universe. I am the sovereign of all things. I create with the spoken word. The mountains quake, the trees shake, the oceans roar because I say so. Psalm 103:19 The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. You know, I love it in John's vision of Revelation chapter 4 when they're talking about heaven and John has this vision. He sees the throne of God and it's high and lifted up. And you know what's in front of the throne of God? A sea like glass. It's crystal. Which means there's not a ripple of turbulence. It's calm in heaven. Why is it calm in heaven? Because the king's authority, God's authority is unassailable. It's far above united rage, it's far above secret counsel, it's far above confederacies and armies, it's far above, above united mutiny, it's far above collective obstinate humanity, it's far, far above all of us collected together, it's far above us individually and independently. God laughs. You are going to stand against my authority? You have got to be kidding. But he doesn't just laugh, he scoffs, which is a word which means to mutter. And the way I take that is as if he's repeating their foolish statements. You're going to tear off the cords? You're going to break away from my rule like fetters? Are you kidding me? And then there's a pause, and it says, he speaks to them with authority, with anger, and terrifies them with his fury. Are you kidding me? You're going to break my fetters? You're going to act like you can unleash or untangle yourself from my rule? Hey! Not happening. It's natural, but it's futile. And it's unacceptable. 
Rebellion is laughable. God scoffs. God speaks angrily. Verse 5, he'll speak to them in his anger, his zeal for his holiness, his place, his position, and he will terrify them with his fury. And he will affirm emphatically this reality. Look at verse 6. As for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, the holy mountain where the throne of thrones and all authority is seated. On that throne, I'll tell you who's going to rule. My king is going to rule. Nothing you can do, all the resistance, all of your rebellion, all of your collective capacity, useless. It's determined. You know, God's laughed a few times over the season of history. He says, my king rules, and there's nothing you can do about it except submit to it. Consider some Old Testament affirmations and illustrations of, I think, God's laughter, or the irony and the way God deals with humanity that says, no, no, I'm not going to submit. No, I know what you want. I'm going to do what I want. Exodus 2, Pharaoh, consider this. He orders the death and drowning of all the Hebrew baby boys. And his daughter finds one. A Hebrew boy becomes like his son. He receives a princely education. In Pharaoh's household, he raises up the son that God has appointed to deliver God's people. God laughs. And God terrifies because later on in the story of that deliverance, Pharaoh's own son would be put to death. I think God laughed also in 1 Samuel 5 when the Israelites made the Ark of the Covenant a mascot. Remember, they weren't doing good in battle, so they carried out the Ark of the Covenant thinking, hey, if the Ark is here, we'll win the battle with the Philistines. They carried out the Ark. They treated it as unholy. They treated it as like it was some kind of good luck charm. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. They toted it back to Ashdod, one of the five Philistine cities that were involved in that initial altercation. Do you remember what they did with the Ark of the Covenant? They put it in the temple of Dagon, the pagan fertility god. They set up the Ark in the temple of Dagon. Do you remember what happened when the priests of Dagon went in to the worship place the next day? All of the idols were face down on the floor. So they set the idols back up. Day two, when they entered into the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was with these idols of idolatry and pagan worship, they found only a stump, Dagon, the idol of the Dagon, no hands, no head, face down. The priests never enter that temple again. They toted the Ark of the Covenant away to another town, and everybody in that town got tumors. So they toted it to another town. Thank you very much. More tumors. From town to town, tumors, tumors, and more tumors. You want to treat me like a mascot? Watch this. I'm not God. I'm not one of many gods. I'm one of a kind. Your God's face down. Your God has no head. Your God has no hands. You want to tote me around? Hear the consequences. God laughs and God terrifies. Finally, the Philistines said, enough with this. We're toting God back to Israel. You can resist me. Oh, and I love Belshazzar. You remember him? Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He's got all the temple stuff. He's hosting a feast of a thousand people to the gods, pagan gods. Hey, go get the silverware and the utensils and the stuff out of the temple, the sacred stuff of the Jews, the temple of God. Let's use that. And he made a toast. 
to the gods of gold and silver and wood. You know what happened next? A hand came out of nowhere and started writing things on the wall. You could see the back of the hand. You could read the words. Meeny, meeny, tekel you farson. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Daniel says that when Belshazzar saw the hand, let me read to you what happened to him. Chapter 5, verse 6. He went pale, his hip joints went slack, and his knees started knocking. To which I say, God laughs. Really? And then in verse 30 of chapter 5 in Daniel the Bible says Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, he was slain that night. God terrifies. You guys remember Friedrich Nietzsche? He's a German philosopher, atheist. He's famous for saying a couple of things you may know. One of his quotes, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. That's one of his but he's most famous for his declaration that God is dead. Here's his statement. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. He grew up in a Lutheran home. His dad was a pastor. He set out to be a pastor. He abandoned his faith. He rejected the rule of God. He rejected the lordship of God. He killed God. God is dead. He remains dead. I killed him. Someone reported some time ago some graffiti on a wall which went like this, God is dead, Nietzsche. Underneath of that, someone had written, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> Nietzsche died after at the age of 44, he went insane, lost his mind. You can do this to God. You can dodge God. You can do your own thing with God. But God says, I have installed my king. To, to whom was he referring? He was referring to his son, Jesus. When was he referring? He was referring to when Jesus was raised from the dead and installed as king of kings, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Look over at chapter 13 of the book of Acts. And you'll see this psalm quoted again. And the reason I'm preaching from it is because it's so central to our understanding of the priority of God as it relates to the person of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's sermon at Pisidian Antioch. He's rehearsing Israel's history. He's been invited to speak on the Sabbath. He's rehearsing Israel's history. He comes down to verse, and that all begins in verse 16, and down in verse 22, he makes a statement about an historical figure in Israel, their favorite king, verse 22, and after he had removed him, referring to God, had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he had testified and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. He's just reminding those Jewish leaders in that Jewish gathering, God picked a king. He picked David. He picked David because David had a heart for God, verse 23. And then he made a promise about David and David's offspring, verse 23. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So I picked David, and then I'm going to make a promise about the offspring of David, the one who's going to save, a king who will come, one who will deliver. That's a reference to Jesus. He talks about the forerunner, John. And then in verse 27, John the Baptist talking about Jesus, the one who's so high and elevated. Verse 27, watch this. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, Paul goes on to say, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets. So when Jesus came, they didn't recognize him, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. 
And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise, what promise, made to the fathers that someone from the line of David, an offspring would come to save. We preach to you the good news of the promise of a Savior, a King coming from the line of David that was made to your fathers. Now watch verse 33. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. The Psalm we're studying. Thou art my son, Today I have begotten thee. Let me tell you what Paul just said. God made a promise to raise up the king. A king who would deliver. A king who would save. He validated that promise when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You killed him, but God raised him. And when God raised him, he coronated him. He installed him. Go back to Daniel chapter 7. I want to show you the, what happened Kind of as if Jesus came alive from the dead. He ascended back to God. What happened? This is a prophetical statement describing what happened. This is Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13. The vision of Daniel records this event. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions. That's his state of Spirit, when he received this revelation from God, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Remember, Jesus ascended in the clouds. He's resurrected, he's ascending. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, that's a reference to the Father, and was presented before him. He's presented as one to be installed, begotten as king. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here's perspective number two. Rebellion is unacceptable. Rebellion is laughable. I have installed my king. I resurrected my king. When he was presented to me, I coronated my king. He is the king, period. Number three. The third thing to never forget, the third stanza, verses 7 through 9. Watch these words. This is, we've gone from the man's action, rebellion, God's reaction, and now the son's declaration. Watch what the son says, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Who is the I? The newly installed king. He said to me, Thou art my son. So now you have the personal interview testimony of the one who God says is my king. Let me tell you what he said to me. You've gone from the father's reaction to the son's declaration it's like you're going into that daniel 7 moment and this is what jesus says he said the ancient of days the father the lord yahweh said to me thou art my son today i have begotten thee that's the installation day it's not when he created him it's when he installed him jesus is uncreated he's eternal he's the living word 
And the father said to the son, this is Jesus reporting, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. Who is that? The resistors. You'll shatter them like earthenware. Who is the them? The rebellers. Here's the third thing you need to remember. Rebellion is crushable, and submission is non-negotiable. This is Jesus' declaration in light of the rule of God and the rebellion of men. I'm the king. It's decreed, it's guaranteed, and it's enforceable. Submit or be broken. I rule, I have the authority to break and shatter. Turn over to Psalm 18. I just want to give you a flavor of what kings do when they face resistance that won't submit. This is a parallel thought. Verse 37. There's a sovereign king talking. He says in verse 37, I pursued my enemies. I overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them, the resistors and the rebellers, the enemies of the throne. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for thou hast girded me with strength for battle. This is the earthly king talking about God's supply. Thou hast subdued under me those who rose up against me. Thou hast made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Watch verse 42. I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as mire in the streets. This is a Davidic king echoing the mindset of the eternal king. I've been given authority. My expectation and my rule is non-negotiable. And it is enforceable. Submit or be broken. And maybe that's where I would want to plant my flag today before we finish up. Some of us carry around a resistance to the rule of God that's on overt display. Some of us, it beats in subtle ways in our heart. Submit. God's installed his king. That king has been resurrected, validated, coronated, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Someday the trumpets will sound and the king will return and all rebellers will be broken beyond remedy. They'll be consumed, they'll be destroyed, and they will be turned out in eternal loss. They will be shattered. Submit. And then let me plant this one last thought, this fourth perspective. So you understand what to do. This is wisdom's invitation. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings. Now see the words now therefore. In light, therefore, because of all this. Because of God's sovereignty. Because of God's decree. Because of the son's identity because of the consequential reality. Do something. Verse 10, now. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Literally, that means use your head. Be wise. Rebellion, bad plan. Do my own thing, bad plan. The clock is ticking. The time is elapsing. The king is coming. The ruler is installed. Use your head. Take advantage of the opportunity. Verse 10. Take warning, O judges of the earth, leaders. 
do this, worship the Lord with reverence. That means serve the Lord with high regard. Rejoice with trembling. I take that rejoicing to be out of utter relief that the hammer has been removed. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. I like the translation. The word homage is kiss. Some of your translations may say kiss the Son. This is what a loved one would do to a loved one. Kiss with affection. Kiss with honor. Kiss is an expression of submission. It's what you would do to a king. You would come and you would bow and you would kneel and you would kiss the sovereign's hand as an expression to say, I get it. I know who you are. I submit to it. I will serve you with fear. I'll rejoice with trembling out of gratitude that I've been relieved because I'm bowing, I'm kissing, I'm honoring I'm submitting. Verse 12, kiss the son, lest he become angry, you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Watch how this psalm closes after all those warnings. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him, refuge in his kingdom, submitted to his sovereignty. Blessed. Masters University students, Rebellion is futile. Resistance is foolish. Submit to the sovereign son and experience the life of God and the joy of God. He is the king. Submit to his sovereignty. Let him be Lord of your life today. Enjoy his blessing. Father, thank you for the time this morning to open your word and to reflect on these challenges these bold and powerful and compelling words this vivid picture of a sovereign king who laughs and who terrifies who is immovable regarding his decision to place his son at the place of authority and royalty Help us to honor that, to submit to that. Help us to experience the life of God. Not just because of biblical meditation, but heart-style submission. In Jesus' name.